let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 21. This is God's inerrant word. Let's listen intently together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration. When Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is the moment. This is it. This is when you broke into the earth, when you broke into time and space and made yourself known for the very first time to the peoples of the earth, in, in, to the shepherds, to the lowliest to the lowest people on earth, Lord, to the very, the most afflicted people on earth, you made yourself known, Lord, letting us know that you are not a God uh, who came to expect things from us, but you are a God who came to join in our affliction and to take our affliction from us, Lord. So help us to see how stunningly different this is from every other narrative about God or gods or the, the supernatural that's ever been manufactured by man. Help us to see how utterly different Jesus is. How much your character is better and more amazing and more loving and more merciful than any other conception of God ever thought of. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see who you really are and what you've really done for us 
Please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey. Illuminate our minds by the power of your spirit so that you might beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. C.S. Lewis, most of you know. If you can't, if you don't, C.S. Lewis was the chair of English literature at Cambridge University in England at the height of anti-biblical scholarship of the 20th century. And he, uh, he described himself as being the most unwilling convert. He fought and kicked and screamed against becoming Christian. And yet, eventually, it over, it over the, the reasonableness of it overtook him and the spirit overtook him. Uh, but this is what he said. Um, this is one of, one of his famous quotes about Christianity that, that applies to our reading today. He says, being, being, besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It's not neat. It's not obvious. It's not what you expect. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. And that's one of the reasons why I believe Christianity. It's a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we'd always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing that anyone would have made up. It has just that queer twist about it that real things have. I pray that all the time. One of my spontaneous prayers in praising God is, this comes out that we would never, no one would ever have made this up. No one would ever have made this up. If you were writing the story about the birth of the king of the universe, the son of God, the incarnate God who came breaking into time and space, how would you write that story? Uh, you know, it would be a celebrity event. It would be at the highest levels of society. It would be including all of the rich. All the news media of Jerusalem would be surrounding Herod, or, you know, Herod's palace, or the temple, or Caesar's palace, or Caesar's home in Caesarea. Uh, and there would be vendors hawking baby Jesus toothpaste and baby Jesus t-shirts and baby Jesus bobblehead dolls and any other, every other thing you could imagine. There would be utter pandemonium. It would be a celebrity event. It would be just marked by fame and wealth and luxury and power and comfort and ambition and reputation and glory and everything that we secretly in our hearts cherish and value as, 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 as truly valuable. And then we come to this story and it's nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. And that's because God and what he values is very different from what the world values. Uh, what the world values is utter nonsense to God. What the world considers to be wisdom is utter foolishness to God. What the, God consider, what the world considers to be power is utter weakness compared to God's power. You see, God didn't come into the world to, to participate in all the opulence and luxury and, and back-slapping, predatory, gluttonous hoarding that happens in the sinful world. He came to free us and to liberate us from all of that nonsense, from that nightmare, and to give us something even better, which was and is a true and lasting peace in a new and better world. 
And even the best part about this whole thing is that he told us exactly what he was going to do and how he was going to do it thousands of years before it happened so that when it did, we would know for sure that this was the Son of God. That we could verify that this story is not only beautiful, but it's true. And so the big idea that we're going to look at today is this, that God has come to bring a true and lasting peace, just like the prophet said. And let's look at that one part at a time. First, God has come. You know, in a very big way, Luke is telling us this story in a way that contrasts the power and the privilege of, of, of Augustus Caesar with the poverty and the shame of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Now, there's lots, of, lots to talk about power right now, lots to talk about abuse of power, especially here in California. A lot of people are talking about mandates and overstretching constitutional bounds uh, and the governor taking upon himself powers that he doesn't have and forcing people to do things that he's not capable of forcing them to do. A lot of talk about that. But you want to know what real power is? You want to know what real power looks like? Real power looks like this. One guy has the power to tell everybody in the known world to pick up what they've got and to travel at an inconvenient time and pay an increase in their taxes and everybody gets up and bows down and does it. That's true power. And that's what's happening in this story. One guy, Augustus Caesar, is just flexing his Caesaric power, his royal power, and making everybody do an awful and inconvenient thing and everybody has to do it. And that is deliberately put in contrast <clears throat> by Luke with the poverty and the shame of Mary and Joseph and Jesus who are uh, mandated, who are required to take this journey and take this quest. Now the pregnancy itself the pregnancy itself, Mary and Joseph were betrothed, it says in the story, which means they weren't yet married officially. However, betrothal is not like engagement for us. For us, if you get engaged, you can break that engagement, not that big a deal. If you, in the ancient world, once you were betrothed, it was legal and set. You were going to get married. And for a woman to get pregnant in that betrothal period meant that she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and there was unbelievable cultural shame that was attached to that. So I didn't bring this up last week, but in, when Mary, in her, you know, when she answers the angel Gabriel and says to him, let it be to me as you say, she's not stupid. She knew what she was taking upon herself. She knew that for the rest of her life, she was going to incur the shame of being seen as an unwed sinful mother and that that stigma and that shame was never, ever going to leave her. And so when she acquiesced and when she said, let it be done to me, she knew that's what she was taking on. She was, and so when I say I want my daughters to venerate, to emulate Mary, I want them to see how she was willing to take a shame upon herself in order to do what God had called her to do to advance the kingdom of God. And that is a lesson that we could be learning more and more and can be taking more from as time goes on. 
whether or not and how we are going to be willing to take on shame for the advancement of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> but the journey itself was 90 miles from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. So ladies, I want you to imagine, everybody who's had, had children here, I want you to imagine the IRS decree that you or your husband or your boyfriend, you had to go and pay your taxes in person in Ensenada. And it was a 20% increase. And you're in your third trimester and you have to walk. There's no donkey in the story. The whole donkey thing, made up. If Mary and Joseph did not have a lamb to give at the cleansing at 33 days, it's very unlikely that they would have a donkey for Mary to ride on. And she walked 90 miles in her third trimester from here all the way to Ensenada. And the delivery itself, it's your first child I remember our first child, it was terrifying. I mean, Nisa spent like six months praying that God would, would, make, would make Hannah small because she was so afraid of how bad it was going to hurt, which is totally reasonable. Uh, Mary, terrified, not knowing how bad it was going to hurt. Uh, there's no such thing as an epidural. And when she gets to the public, you know, when they get to Ensenada, the only place for them to stay is the equivalent of a public restroom, and nothing is clean. And there's no privacy. And as she endured that, that birth and the pain of that birth, hundreds of people through paper-thin walls heard everything that happened. There's a poem by Andrew Peterson called Labor of Love, goes like this, slightly revised. He says, it was not a silent night. There was blood upon the ground. You could hear a young girl cry that night through the streets of David's town. And the stable wasn't clean. And the dirty floor was cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her teenage face, did bear the shame alone. It kind of puts that whole narrative in a whole different perspective. And when I hear that story, when I hear that story in those terms, really my first question is, why? Why would God do that? Why, wouldn't, why couldn't God, put, you know, why couldn't God put them up at the Ensenada Sheraton? Why couldn't there been at least, you know, a something? Why did it have to be so hard? Why would God do that to his people? Why would he allow that level of affliction to Mary, who he just said, you have found favor with the Lord. The Lord is with you. And then this is how that plays out in real life. How many people, how many people do you know who were Christian and endured real affliction and hardship and ducked out, cut out, left the faith altogether? I did. When I saw my mother's hardship and suffering and death when I was 15 years old, I was like, if that's what God's got for his people, I'm done. Why would he do that to his people? 
part of the answer is part of the answer is this. I read a fascinating article a while ago that talked about the, the deathbed experiences of famous atheists and agnostics. He talked about the stories of Oscar Wilde, who uh, was a famous uh, hedonist in, uh, the in the late 18th century, a poet and a hedonist, told the story of Rock Hudson, who was a movie star in the 1950s and 60s, even told the story of Charles Darwin, the, the author of, of or the, the, the father of, of evolutionary theory. Uh, and the one thing about all of their deathbed experiences was that in the last moments of their life, they all became terrified and began screaming out for, for the God of heaven. Rock Hudson began screaming and crying out for a priest to come so that he could confess his sins. Uh, Oscar Wilde, the same thing, began... in. Fell into deep despair and terror. Even Charles Darwin, in his own way, fell into despair and began speaking about the Creator and the creation of the universe and God's providence and design. And the thing is this that those who are not afflicted, the ones who are at Caesar's palace enjoying the birth of, re of earthly kings, they could care nothing, care nothing about the afterlife. They care nothing about the things of God because they don't have to. There's no need to. They care nothing at all about it until the last minute. But for the afflicted, it's different. For the afflicted, the afflicted know better. The afflicted know that this is not heaven. The afflicted know that this is not the perfect world. The afflicted know that we need a new and better world, and the afflicted look to God for that new and better world. It's all Hebrews chapter 11 says that. Great saints that have lived throughout the course of millennia, all of them afflicted and in deep hardship throughout all this time, and yet all of them have this great hope that they were looking forward to a new and better world, a city whose foundations were built in, by God. So part of the reason why God gives us affliction, why God has put a curse on the world, why we live in a fall, why sin affects us so badly is that God uses that and gives it to us as a gift so that we know this, isn't the, this is not the end. This is not the ultimate world so that we will better look for and put our hope in the one true and lasting thing that is the new creation a new and better world that he is promising to bring in through Jesus. And God being who he is and the, having the character that he is, when it says that God, Emmanuel, will come and be with us, he didn't come and be with us in the palace. He came to be with us in and through our affliction, to share in our affliction so that he could sympathize with us in that affliction. So that when you pray to Jesus about the affliction that you are under, you're not praying to someone who theoretically knows about your affliction. You're praying to someone who has lived through it and can empathize in the deepest way with what you are suffering and what you are suffering through. And in that compassion, he can offer us comfort. 
and offer us the solution, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so as God, has God given you affliction? Usually when we get affliction, we're like, why does God hate me? <laughs> but if God has given you affliction and you belong to him, that is his, that is his gift and that is his love. That is his love for us. God with us, sharing in our affliction because that's what he's like. Second, God came to bring us peace. Second, God came to bring us peace. So the poverty, the shame of Mary and Joseph are being contrasted by Luke with the power and the privilege and the prestige of Augustus Caesar. Augustus himself started life in a wealthy family. He started life as Octavian. And he and two other generals brought peace to Rome after his great uncle and adopted father, Julius Caesar, was murdered uh, in 44 BC. He and three other generals brought peace or brought, brought order to the Roman world and then uh, Octavian got rid of the other two generals, took over, became Augustus and began the great Roman peace, the Pax Romana where he was able to bring a period of relative peace for, that lasted for a long time in, in the Roman world, where they were free from invading armies. They were free from the, uh, the most brutal aspects of war. Uh, and so he was lauded as a god for this. I mean, he, he himself, after his great uncle, his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was murdered uh, in 44 BC, uh, in July, later that year, there was a comet that passed over and Augustus proclaimed that that was, uh, that was Julius Caesar now deified on his way to heaven and took to himself the title of the Son of God. Because that Roman peace, they proclaimed that the Romans, and they believed the Romans had created a peace that everyone had always looked to God to create. And so there was this propaganda campaign that the Romans had accomplished what only God could accomplish and he became worshipped as a god himself. And so in that, Luke wants to contrast, again, Augustus with Jesus. And the Roman peace with the kind of peace that Jesus is, being, is promised to bring. And in doing that, he gives Jesus three titles. He gives the title Savior, Christ, Lord, and here's the thing, all those titles were titles that Augustus had already claimed for himself. Same titles. Luke has taken those titles and given them to Jesus. Now critics will see that and they'll say, see, those are pre-existing titles. What the Christian movement was really about was just a political movement to overthrow the Roman government. That's all it was. And over time it got kind of, you know, you know how it goes. It got out of control. Jesus became deified himself. And by the third century, they were, the horse was out of the gate and running. However, that's a very short-sighted view. Luke has given these titles to Jesus for a very specific purpose. And the specific purpose is he wants people to see the difference between an earthly peace and what that's really all about, what it can really promise, and the everlasting and true peace that God is promising through Jesus. And so the angels come and they announce that Jesus 
is a better kind of king, a better quality, a better level of king altogether. He's not come to uh, help and alleviate the symptoms of the fallen world. He has come to solve the very problem and root cause of the fallen world. He has come to eliminate, to pay the penalty and to take our sins upon himself and bring us into relationship and into peace with God. And so there's three titles. First, Savior. Augustus was seen as being the Savior from war. Jesus was being proclaimed uh, as saving us from the cause, the very cause of war and famine and racism and poverty and disease and depression and drug addiction and sex trafficking and bullying and cutting and every other awful thing that sin in this world produces because Jesus had come as a better king to end the war, the spiritual war, to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and to bring us into a new and perfect world. And Augustus Caesar, Jesus is proclaimed here as being Christ, which means it's a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means the anointed one. And we know from myriad prophets and from David that the anointed one was going to be God's son, the son of God. And as I just already said, Augustus himself declared his father to be God, thus earning himself the title of the son of God. But in this passage, we see angels who are messengers of the true God bringing his message to earth. It is now God, the father, declaring that his son is the eternal son of God. That's a whole different kind of son of God. And finally, the big surprise is the title Lord. Caesar, Augustus Caesar, had taken the title of Lord upon himself. He was the Lord of all the earth. And the radical difference is that Jesus is depicted as the Lord, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. He is the incarnate God of heaven and earth. It's the radical difference that's being proclaimed here is that this isn't just a king, it's not even a deified man, like all the other stories about gods and women and procreation and half-gods and Greek myths. It's a radically different order of story. This is the incarnate God, the creator of the universe, who has come and entered into time and space to fix all of the problems of the earth by wiping it away, wiping sin away, giving us his righteousness so that we could stand before God and, and earning through his work a new, a completely new and better world. And so these, these, these titles are, in fact, a deliberate challenge, a deliberate challenge to the claims of Augustus, and that's on purpose. And Christians in the early ages got in a lot of trouble for that. But it wasn't just one king, earthly king, vying for power against another earthly king. It was the king of the universe proclaiming the fullness of who he was so that people would stop trusting in these little things and stop trusting in politics and leaders and rulers and put their trust in the one person who could fulfill, who could deliver, and that's Jesus, the true king of the universe. And the whole point of it is because Jesus is able to bring not 
a temporary peace like the Roman emperor, but a true and lasting peace. Listen, the Stoic philosopher, contemporary of Luke, a guy named Epictetus, he says this, contemporary of Luke, he says, he says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, from grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even an outward peace. You see, Octavian, Augustus, he can only order, he can only offer a tenuous peace, a volatile peace through force, through warfare, through aggression. But only Jesus could offer a true and lasting peace that would last forever. The kind of peace that Caesar offered was great if you were rich, but it didn't do too much for you if you had to walk 90 miles to travel on foot while you were pregnant to pay your taxes. For that kind of peace, we need Jesus. And that's what the story is about, really. If this story was a movie, I mean, if a Hollywood, if they could, and I don't even know if they could, you know, Hollywood's tried to make a lot of biblical movies. If they could capture the essence of this story and tell it in a way that was faithful to the Bible, it would, it would connect with everyone. It would connect with people on the deepest level because it would be the greatest love story ever told. I mean, what, what makes a great story, right? Every great story has all these elements in it. The story of the good king. <clears throat> Who leaves everything behind for the sake of his people. Who sacrifices himself to, to save the kingdom. I mean, that's the stuff that every good story is made out of. And here we have that story of the good king who sacrifices everything to enter into the affliction of his people and live in it with them. And then he recreates the entire kingdom into a never-ending perfect world by sacrificing himself. It's truly, truly the greatest love story ever told. And that's what a lot of times when critics or, or agnostics, when they finally get what we're saying when we talk about the gospel, when, they find, when it finally registers, when, we, when they understand that we're not talking about, here's another, you know, another metaphysical system where God has given a, a, you know, a series of moral commandments that you must live up with or live up to in order to earn the afterlife. When they get that that's not at all what we're saying, that there's a radical difference and that Christianity is about God himself who came into the suffering of this world and took our suffering upon himself, took the judgment that we deserved upon himself on the cross and then freely offers his righteousness as a gift to anybody that would have it to bring them into eternal life and peace. When they finally get that that's what we're saying in the gospel, a lot of them turn around and say, ah, okay, okay, that's beautiful. I get it. It's beautiful. But it's not, you know. It's a beautiful story, Pastor Rob. A lot of beautiful stories out there. If only it were true. If only it were true. And so, what's the answer? What's our answer to that? 
The answer to that is that although it is a beautiful story, God gave us a history, a thousand years of history or more of prophets in the Old Testament who came and gave, laid out in detail all of these things as they would happen before the fact so that we would know that when this beautiful story happened, it was actually true because it had been told, it had been laid out in detail prior to it happening. Now, we're limited time-wise. I would love to like take you through. Now's where I'd love to geek out and like run you guys through 50 or 60 prophecies from the Old Testament that lay out detail, but we're gonna have to we're going to have to hit some highlights on this. If you have any questions about how this plays out or other aspects to this argument that I can't get to, please talk to me after the sermon or send me an email. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But let's start with the prophecies that the angels themselves mention in this story. First, they say, first, this is not, again, the angels coming. It's not a surprise announcement. They're saying this is a fulfillment. They're saying what's happening here is what God has promised from ages past. And what do they say? Uh, they say that it's good news of great joy for all people. That echoes back to a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that talks about how the divine son that was promised to deliver all the nations from sea to sea he would rule and bring great joy. When he says, when the angels say, for unto you is born, echoes back to Isaiah 6, the call to worship we had today. For you, unto you a, a child is born, unto you a son is given. The divine son is promised, uh, and the king will not be just a deified man, but the incarnate God himself. Uh, when they say, in the city of David, they're referring back to a prophecy in Micah 5.2, that from insignificant little Bethlehem, this little back, Bethlehem's a little town, that from Bethlehem, that's where the Messiah, the divine king, would be born. Uh, the prophecies don't start there. All those prophecies I just laid out, they fit seamlessly in this endless parade of organic prophecy, meaning organic, meaning they build upon themselves. Each prophecy gives more and more detail as time goes on. And the, the history of all these prophecies starts at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises that is the very first promise that the king will come, will be born, and he will undo the sin that are the first people committed. And then in Genesis 12, that, that son would be born through the family of Abraham. In Genesis uh, 49, the son would come through the line of Judah. In 2 Samuel David, it comes through the line of David. It's narrowing down, it's narrowing down. It's getting more specific and more specific as time goes on. And here's why I wish I could just go through all these prophecies with you, but suffice it to say, Isaiah 53 says this king would be the savior of the world by being pierced for our transgressions. This prophecy was written 300 years before crucifixion was invented. Also, Psalm 22 talks about Jesus being crucified. Psalm 22 is the psalm that Jesus proclaimed from the cross so that we could make the connection. And from there, the details of the crucifixion, the trial before Pilate, the betrayal by, by Judas, the resurrection of Jesus, his return in glory, all of them are given out in hundreds of prophecies in detail so that we would know. 
when he showed up, he would be the guy, right? And how would we know? Because when you put all those prophecies together, you apply, you know, statistical probability to all those prophecies, one guy completing all those, the number comes out to be just absurd. Ten quadrillion to one, one guy would be able to fulfill all of those prophecies. Ten quadrillion to one, Jesus was not the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And I don't care how you put the Old Testament together. Maybe you're a guy who's like, well, the Old Testament was you know, edited several times and put together from primary sources. I don't care if a monkey wrote the Old Testament on a napkin in this Alexandria. We have it in black and white, 250 BC, 250 years before Jesus was born. We have a stunning record of detailed prophecies showing that the chances of Jesus fulfilling all of those by chance 100 quadrillion to one. So, do you feel lucky <laughs> with those odds? Here's what it means. What it means at the end of the day is that the source behind the prophet's prophetic record in the Old Testament uh, was able to call out the end from the beginning with precision. And therefore, whatever that source is, it is necessarily supernatural outside of time and space in order to do that. And that source, who is God, being proven to be supernatural, is more reliable a witness, a more reliable source than any of our religious speculations, no matter how brilliant they may seem. And so the point, here's the point. Is it a beautiful story? Yes. It's the most beautiful story ever told. Is it true? Yes. You can believe it uh, without losing any... Uh, you can believe it with full intellectual integrity. You don't have to believe it. But you can, and you don't have to leave anything at the door. You can take that story over any of the other ones that offer much less and hold it knowing that God has given us all the evidence in the world to know it's true so that we can look forward and sure and certain hope in and through whatever affliction we may face in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made... Your word's so sure. We thank you that you have not just left us with a blind faith, as people so often like to charge us. That we must leave our intellectual integrity at the door to believe this story. Not only is it when we understand it in its fullness, the most beautiful version on, on record of how God operates in the world, the most beautiful story of God and salvation. But you have also gone to great lengths to preserve your word in the Old Testament and your record of these events in the New Testament to let us know that it's not only beautiful, it's true. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone wrestling with these things, I pray that you would 
I pray that you would use this, that the power of your word would go forth and you would bring salvation to those who you are bringing salvation to. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would be awestruck uh, and we would be steadied in our faith so that when affliction comes, we might not be tempted to be angry at you, but we can remember that you entered into our affliction and suffered it along with us and that ultimately you have a long game you are playing and that you are promised already to bring us out of this affliction. And our job is to sit tight, to wait, to hold the faith and to be witnesses in the world. Give us that power through the Spirit. Help us to magnify Jesus in everything we do so that we might participate in the advancement of your kingdom, come what may. In Jesus' name, amen.